0: This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card for this week is Ken Phelps.
1: Ken Phelps, DH, first baseman for the Seattle Mariners. Card number 182.
0: 182 ken phelps i can't wait to talk about this one
1: my baseball people keep telling me ken phelps ken phelps
0: (laughs) yes yes absolutely and we've already heard from fans that there's some kind of post traumatic stress disorder that people are still dealing with 32 years later after hearing about ken phelps so we can't wait for this episode it's going to be excellent but before we get to that, we, we do have an update from last week's episode with Jim Whalewander.
1: Matt, sometimes folks chime in on the Facebook page with some odd stories, so I'd encourage folks to go visit us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1988 podcast. On the Jim Whalewander post about the episode, Facebook fan Dan said that Dan had a cousin who was a Catholic priest near Tiger Stadium. And Jim Whalewander came to the church to ask for his bat to be blessed by a priest before a game. This led to Jim Whalewander getting sent down to the minors. I mean, <laughs> I don't know that that was a direct result. But also, Dan's cousin shortly thereafter left the priesthood and married a nun. So that's the kind of good content that you're going to get on the Facebook page. Uh, and also just another side of that Jim Whalewander was... A character
0: yeah I mean he was running with the devil and running with the angels I mean he was with the punk band the dead Milkmen. he was you know potentially getting priests kicked out of the clergy
1: yeah I'm not sure that the bat had anything to do with the guy leaving the priesthood it seems from Dan's <laughs> other posts that the cousin had already been planning on leaving the clergy
0: well I like to think there's a direct correlation so we'll leave that but you can find out for yourself by checking on the Facebook page and so, please do see us there. And David, I had another update, and that is about your favorite mascot and mine, Nazano Sakana of the Chiba Lote Marines. Nazano
1: Sakana had its final transformation this week. If you'll recall, Nazano Sakana is the mascot of the Chiba Lote Marines and a favorite of the pod. It has transformed a few times from a giant fish that vomits up its own skeleton to the skeleton then having a fuzzy fish for a head. And now, this week, Nazanosekana kind of busted out of its giant fuzzy body to reveal a fish man with a fish head. And this is, was done in the middle of a game. And Nazanosekana kind of also has a microphone for a head proboscis. I don't know what you call that <laughs> thing at the top of an anglerfish. fish that doubles as a microphone and Nazano Sakana re- released finally to Matt's relief. It's debut single, which I believe is also called Nazano Sakata, which means mystery fish.
0: Yes. Nazano Sakana, mystery fish, this transformation, David, as you mentioned, I, I've been anxiously awaiting it for, for many weeks and months, but here in 2021, Nazano Sakana fulfilling its evolution into a final form and the entire song, which we'll play a bit for you here, is all about Nasuno Sakana's journey and dealing with the emotional difficulty of not knowing what it is and what it will become. So I think it is a song that has universal appeal and also some fantastic dance moves.
1: This has been a big week for baseball. You know, There's the first no hitter of the season last night. Yerman Mercedes is just tearing it up. Shohei Otani is pitching and blasting 100 mile per hour home runs while throwing the ball 100 miles per hour and. Nazo Sakana is performing his dance moves on the field to the bemusement of
0: the audience. Maybe I'm just the rare one that that's really moved by, by Nazo Sakana's evolution story. I don't speak Japanese, but I took the subtitles from the video, ran them through Google Translate, and tried to do my best translation into English. So I'll say some of them here, which is i am three steps ahead of the world it makes me think i'm on my own but regardless of enemies or allies i'm crazy about me and that david i feel like (laughs) is just a confidence and you know that Nasuno sakana is a trailblazer and does not care if the fans aren't into it yet the fish man is trying to find its way in the world so we will keep you up to date folks on any later developments. There is going to be an album drop with a DJ later in the month of April. And we'll hope that we can either be there in person for that, or at the very least find some video to share with you in a future episode.
1: I appreciate Nazano Sakana's forthrightness and confidence. And you can see in this video for the song, he is aggressively punching and dancing. It is very, it's great. This is mysterious final fish form you know, really, I think this might be the song of the summer.
0: That's the end of our very important update about Japanese baseball mascots. Now let's go to our card for this week. And that is Ken Phelps number 182. And this card was a suggestion by a listener.
1: Email came in from listener Jeff B. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff gave a few reasons for Ken Phelps. And I'm, I'm going to turn this maybe a little bit more cryptic than the way that Jeff wrote it, because he <laughs> he gave away some of the, the fun of the story here. He said that Ken has a good look about him, and Ken was a great power hitter with an iconic final home run, and his name is also immortalized in comedy lore. So there's a lot to like about Ken Phelps.
0: Very well done. Very well done. There's some strong feelings from, from Yankees fans in particular about this story to come, but before we get to that, let's just get to the card itself. So let's go to the front of 182 We've got, I believe, our first sunglasses to make an appearance in the 1988 Tops podcast, David. Ken is hes in the batter's box. He's wearing the gray Mariners Away uniform. He is a left-handed batter, so you can see him getting ready, but it looks like he's squaring to bunt.
1: Yeah, I don't know who would have made Ken Phelps bunt, whoever that is. <laughs> <laughs> they should have been fired. Ken Phelps was an outstanding power hitter. And if it was Dick Williams, Dick Williams got fired in 1988, so maybe it was the result of this (laughs) making Ken Phelps bunt. He had one sacrifice bunt in his career. Or maybe this was the one sacrifice bunt in Ken Phelps's career. But yeah, like you said, this is a good look, good sunglasses. He has a a very Tom Skerritt in Top Gun look. Mm, Yes. Like an angry boss. Or maybe a... A police officer? This could be like a cop look. The mirrored sunglasses looking back at the pitcher.
0: Yeah, and a very very thick mustache, as you mentioned. We're also going to, before we get to the back of the card, David, I want to mention that Ken Phelps also was included in the Topps big card set. And so we're going to have have a link to that too. We talked
1: about those big cards on the Jerry Royster episode. They were slightly larger versions of a baseball card that it seemed like nobody liked because they didn't fit in the normal baseball card accoutrement.
0: Yeah, very difficult to collect, which made them a real pain because they didn't fit in the normal stack, the normal sleeves, uh, or anything else. But I got to say that this, this big card from the 1988 Topps big card set features an enormous mustache. That, and Ken Phelps, without his glasses on, you get a real look at those very lovely light blue eyes i guess and enormous <laughs> red mustache
1: we'll also include a link to this picture that features a side by side of the 1987 don russ card and the i think it's a 1990 tops card and you can see the evolution of ken phelps and it looks like his mustache is taking over his whole being <laughs> almost like a muppety look about him it's a good push broom mustache and giant glasses
0: yeah i, I I agree with you in the like a classic 80s cop look. But flipping to the back of 182, again, Ken Phelps, D.H. and first baseman, 6'1", 200-pound, left-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Royals in 1976, born August 6, 1954 in Seattle, Washington, with a home in Tempe, Arizona.
1: He was born in Seattle. He went to Ingram High School. Other Ingram alums include Jay Inslee very short-time 2020 presidential candidate and governor of the state of Washington. Uh, Chuck Jackson, who was a third baseman for the Astros, also in the 1988 top set. And Ken followed a bit of an odd path to the pros and an odd path into the major leagues as well. He graduated in 1972 from high school and was drafted in the eighth round. So as we see on the back of the card, when he's finally drafted by the Royals in 1976, he was drafted in the 15th round. So he was drafted higher out of high school, but decided to go the college route. He went to Washington State for a year, which is not a bad baseball program. They had a a legendary coach there at the time. Paul Nochi also went to Washington State University. So they had a, a good run of pro players as well. But Ken wanted to play at Arizona State the top baseball program in the country, a great history, later would have Oda B. McDowell and Barry Bonds go there, but they had a really great baseball program. So he moves to Arizona and plays one year for a junior college program at Mesa Community College. He's a junior college All-American. He ends up getting drafted again but doesn't sign and earns a transfer to Arizona State where he plays two seasons, and in 135 games, he hit 336 with 20 home runs and 115 RBIs. That was one of the best college teams of all time, that 1976 Arizona State team. They had 13 players drafted from that Arizona State <laughs> team, which I believe is a record for the most players drafted in, in a single year. And over those four years between high school and his senior year of college, he dropped seven rounds— He ends up getting drafted in the fifteenth round by the Royals after his senior season.
0: His Arizona State Gambit does not pay off, but he does end up getting drafted and joins the Royals in nineteen seventy-six and starts out in rookie ball, hitting around three hundred.
1: Gets called up to the to the A level and drops down in the into the two sixties. The next season in nineteen seventy-seven, he hits three forty-five at A-ball, gets called up to double A, drops down to one hundred ninety-five. 1978 he's getting more established at double a hits 247 he also drew a ton of walks so if you look at these seasons on baseball reference his on-base percentage is well up over 400 kind of a money ball guy before money ball became a thing in 1979 he's all the way up to triple a omaha and it's more of the same hitting 265 20 home runs he had 98 walks that year his OPS was 885. So he's clearly a good power hitter and a good on base guy. By 1980, now you have a 25 year old Ken Phelps at AAA. He's hitting 294, getting a, almost a walk a game 128 walks in 133 games, hitting 23 home runs. His OPS is up near 1.0, a 988 OPS. Wow. So he's really good at getting on base, very good left-handed power hitter and just crushes right-handed pitching and he finally gets a call up in 1980 and he goes 0 for four in oh. three games
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah with two strikeouts so the back of card 182 doesn't have any of the minor league stats because he has enough major league lines here so that first line for 1980 is pretty sad three games four at bats two strikeouts and nothing else
1: it doesn't tell you the whole story of Ken Phelps, which is this long and successful minor league career, and that continues into 1981. He spends a chunk of the season in Kansas City and some of it in Omaha, but only gets 22 at bats in Kansas City.
0: So, what is going on here? It just seems really strange. Like,
1: yeah, you have a dominant AAA player, and he was a player that, if given a chance, could succeed at the major league level, as we Going to end up seeing. And Bill James, statistician, sabermetrician, loved Ken Phelps. And a little bit later than this 1981 82 time frame, Bill James created something called the Ken Phelps All Star Team. Basically, it's freely available talent guys who are 27, 28 years old. There's no plan to use them at the major league level. And they're not getting time for the team that they're currently on. But maybe if they went somewhere else and were set up in a different situation, they could perform at a major league level and be successful. And according to Bill James, you have Phelps playing decent defense at first base. But he was on the Royals in the Royals organization. The Royals had just traded for Willie Aikens to play first base, and they had Hal McRae as their DH. So they didn't need Ken, and he just remained at AAA. By 1982, he's 27 years old. And so undervalued that Kansas City trades him to Montreal for a 39-year-old relief pitcher. And that was uh, Grant Jackson, who was a 1979 World Series champ. He only ended up pitching 20 games before retiring at the end of the season. So just nobody thought Ken Phelps was going to be adding anything to the major league roster.
0: And, And then they trade him to the Expos in the National League that doesn't even have a DH. So there's even fewer chances for him to even contribute there.
1: Yeah, he goes to the Montreal. He only gets eight at-bats for the Expos, but in Triple A, he hit three thirty-three with 46 home runs and 141 <laughs> RBIs for the what? Wichita Arrows. That's Whoa. a 1.176 OPS. How does this guy not get called
0: up? The simple answer is that the Expos already had a first baseman who was crushing it.
1: Yeah, they had Al Oliver, who's hitting three thirty one. He's 35 years old, but... He's performing at a high level. They also had a good outfield, so they couldn't even try and experiment with Ken Phelps in the outfield. And by spring of 1983, Ken is asking for a trade. And Montreal didn't even trade him. They just sold him to the Mariners. And there's a good quote from Ken around this time that he just says, Some guys are spoon-fed and some aren't. I wasn't one of them. You just try to learn from it and become a better person. Because he knew he's not getting any opportunities. He's just kind of languishing there in A. 28 years old, coming off a monster season and just unwanted by any team, it seems.
0: Well, things are about to change when he goes back out West. He goes back home to Seattle. Well, actually the AAA Salt Lake City before getting up to the Mariners. And he's at Salt Lake for 74 games and hits 24 home runs in 74 games. OPS of 1.209 and a 349 average. So once again, just keeping up the total domination at the plate in the minor leagues.
1: And he earns a call up for 50 games, his first real regular gig in the majors, and hits 236, seven home runs, 16 RBIs, 13 walks is decent for that short sample size. But this is the Mariners. (laughs) Maybe I should just leave it at that. As we discussed in the Ray and Jonas episode, they were eight years from their first five hundred team. They they liked Ken. They had this guy who's a journeyman, but can hit for power and get on base. He's going on thirty, but the management said this is going to be our first baseman.
0: And it looked like he would be until he had a bit of bad luck. He hurt his finger early in the season in nineteen eighty four. And to cover for him, the Mariners bring in Alvin Davis to cover at first base. And Alvin goes on to win Rookie of the Year and is one of the Mariners' best players for seven seasons. So then what do they do when Ken comes back?
1: So the Mariners had uh, Storm and Gorman Thomas as their DH going into the 84 season. Thomas got injured as well. So when Phelps comes back, they have a spot open at DH. And he comes back in and platoons against right-handed pitchers and hits 24 home runs in only 290 at-bats. 23 of those 24 came against righties, and he he hit a home run every 12 at-bats, which was ninth in the American League that season.
0: Getting the right opportunity paid off in a big way for Ken. Going into 1985, well, Storm and Gorman Thomas is back from surgery, and he hits more than 30 home runs wins Comeback Player of the Year, and so Ken's playing time drops off.
1: Yes, his production dropped a little bit, but around this time also, he catches the eye of the Yankees organization, and they start sniffing around the Mariners, trying to see if they can pick up Ken. Uh, Yankee Stadium is a good place for a left-handed power hitter, but the Mariners didn't want to trade Ken Phelps at this point. Going into 1986, Gorman Thomas is released halfway through the season, and Ken is back to his old ways. Similar to the 1984 season, he hits... 24 home runs, 247 average in 344 at bats, slugging in the 500s and an OPS of 932. Again, 6th in the American League in at bats per home run, a home run every 14 at
0: bats. Good Lord. In 1987, the last stat line on this card, it's even better. It 27 home runs in 332 at bats, a slugging percentage of 548. It's just, it's just phenomenal. And walking more than he strikes out, so his OPS is extremely high too, 959. And you got to say this is peak Ken
1: Phelps. Maybe not peak Ken Phelps mustache, but definitely <laughs> peak Ken Phelps as power on base guy. We see that he doesn't really get that many at-bats. The most at-bats he had in his career in a season was 344. So never really getting 500 plus at-bats. Maybe if he had, maybe he he might have hit off lefties a little bit better. Could have had a 35-plus home run season if he was getting more playing time. And going into 1988, Phelps gets even better. Through his first 72 games, he hit 14 home runs, on track for a really good season as a 33-year-old DH. And on May 20th of 1988, he hits a historic home run. It's his 100th home run of his career. And this is a shocking fact. He was the fastest player to 100 home runs at the time. He did it in only 1,322 at-bats, which at the time was an MLB record, since has been broken by Ryan Howard. I just checked real quickly, and the first name that came to mind of somebody who might have broken this record recently was Aaron Judge, who hit 52 home runs as a rookie, through 2019 was at 1,400 at-bats and had 110 home runs. So it would have been pretty close. But I guess suffice to say that Ken Phelps was at Aaron Judge levels of production in, in as far as at-bats per home run.
0: Meanwhile, the Mariners are in the cellar in the American League West. They fire their manager, Dick Williams, after only 50 games. So they're motivated to make a move. And it's finally time to do the deal with the Yankees. And that takes us, David, to maybe what Ken Phelps is best known for in at least the the only place I had heard his name before prepping for this show. And that is an episode of Seinfeld from season seven in 1996. This is an episode called The Caddy. Now, baseball shows up in Seinfeld all the time. George Costanza is you know, working for the Yankees. You have Keith Hernandez from the Mets making a very famous appearance, Roger McDowell, all sorts of players, you know, make their way onto the show. But this episode in particular, I think really gets to the heart of how Yankee fans feel about Ken Phelps. And to set the stage a little bit in case you don't remember the episode, this is one where George is working for the Yankees. And so he is, you know, pretending like he's staying late He locked his keys in the car. So his car is stuck in
1: the parking lot. And I was mad. I think that in the notes here, I wrote then for complicated reasons, George (laughs) Steinbrenner believes that George Costanza is dead.
0: Yeah. So we'll just leave it at that. Uh, There are two, I think cruxes of the episode. The first one is in a trial that is a knockoff parody of the OJ Simpson trial Sue Ellen Mischke is attempting to put on a white bra over top of her shirt. And Jackie Childs, the Johnny Cochran uh, stand-in, is, you know, interrogating her. That's the first part. But the second one is George Steinbrenner going to Frank and Estelle Costanzas to let them know that their son George is dead.
1: I can't believe it. He was so young. How could this have happened?
0: Well, he'd been logging some pretty heavy hours. First one in in the morning, last one to on leave at night. That kid was a human dynamo. Are
1: you sure you're talking about George?
0: You are, Mr. and Mrs. Costanza.
1: What the hell did you trade J.P.U.N.A.
0: for? <laughs> he had 30 home runs and over 100 R.B.I.s last year. He's got a rocket for an arm. You don't know what the hell you're doing.
1: Well, you know he was a good prospect, no question about it. But my baseball people love Ken Phelps' bat. They kept saying Ken Phelps, Ken Phelps. I'm not here to leave a
0: Jerry. It's Frankenstein. So Mr. Steinbrenner's here. George dad call me back.
1: It's of course a joke, but at the same time, like there are genuine questions about what George Steinbrenner was thinking with this trade. They trade Jay Buhner for Ken Phelps. Yes, Jay Buhner could become a star. He was a prospect. But the Yankees have been chasing Ken Phelps for four years and finally get this trade. And I think that Frank Costanza's response to this is exactly how a ton of Yankees fans still feel about this trade and maybe how some of them felt at the time. When you look back at the the New York Times reporting this trade, even then it doesn't make any sense. The response from Lou Pinello was something like, well, you know, maybe we'll give Ricky Henderson and Dave Winfield and Jack Clark days off against righties. But where are you going to put Ken Phelps? Are you going to put him in the outfield? They even talked about putting Don Mattingly in the outfield so that you could put Ken Phelps in at first base. It was a sign of the Yankees in the 80s that they made these ill-fated moves. They traded away prospects for old guys that didn't quite work out. And unfortunately, in this case, it made Ken Phelps an icon. He said he was getting calls in 1996. He's well into retirement. And he's getting calls from people saying, you're an icon now. You're on Seinfeld. And it's unfortunate, too, because this is the thing that people remember him for, not the fact that he was the fastest player to 100 home runs. He was a very good power hitter. And this is kind of unfortunate, but it seems that Buner, Phelps, they're in on the joke now.
0: So it's a mysterious trade. It's one the fans hate. But for Ken's part, he was perfectly happy to go- be going to New York because the Mariners were in last place. And he said, at least George Steinbrenner wants to win and tries to win. I can't say that about the other George, who was the owner of the Mariners. But it works out exactly as you, as you thought it might. He never quite fit in. He didn't get much playing time. This Yankee team didn't
1: need another DH. They needed pitching. <laughs> And unfortunately, Ken Phelps, you know, it's not his fault that he's brought into a place where he doesn't, he isn't needed. He does his best. 10 home runs and 107 at-bats is, those are good Ken Phelps numbers. It included a walk-off in August against his former teammates. And he finished the year with 24 home runs and 297 at-bats combined between Seattle and New York, which is an impressive
0: total and what you'd expect from Ken Phelps. So after the 88 season the Yankees trade away Jack Clark, which you would think would free up some space for Ken Phelps in the DH role. But things just don't go well from there. He ends
1: up losing his spot as the DH due to poor performance. He didn't really produce to his normal standard. He hit two forty-nine with seven home runs in 86 games. He just wasn't the same player. He also didn't endear himself to his teammates by Complaining about the amount of drinking that was happening on flights. When he was in Seattle, the Mariners didn't allow drinking on flights, and so he complained to Lou Pinella, and Lou Pinella banned hard liquor on the team plane, which led to some resentment among veteran Yankees players. They thought that it was Ken's fault. <laughs> but, and yeah. I mean, to go from the other team in New York in 1986, what they were doing on airplanes, and then the Yankees by 1989 banning liquor on airplanes, it just seems like a bit of an overreach. And so between not necessarily getting along with veteran teammates and also this poor performance, the Yankees end up trading Ken to Oakland. And he ends up only playing 131 games for the Yankees after all those years of Steinbrenner trying to get him.
0: Now he gets traded to Oakland for a minor league pitcher named Scott Holcomb who never never made it to the major leagues. Ken ends up though on a World Series winner in 1989 with the Oakland A's. It's a huge year for the A's, but Ken has nine at bats.
1: (laughs) That second part of the season in Oakland, he went one for nine, played in 11 games, He did make the World Series roster and made the playoff roster, but unfortunately, he only had two pinch hit appearances in the playoffs. One was a double in the ALCS, and the other was a pop fly in Game 4 of the World Series. So he got a ring, so that's good. (laughs)
0: 1990, he only plays 32 games for the A's, but he has a very big moment April 20th against the Mariners. He was called in to pinch
1: hit in the ninth inning with two outs in a game where... The A's were losing 6-0. to zero. The opposing pitcher, in this case, had gotten the first 26 batters out in a row. And against the defending champs, with Ricky Henderson, Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Brian Holman is pitching a perfect game. And Tony LaRussa tells Phelps, Go up there and swing away. You might only get one pitch to hit, so just don't take any pitches. For a guy who's known to be selective in his swings, to be told, Swing away... Uh, It's not necessarily in Ken Phelps' nature, but he gets the first pitch and blasts it into the right field bleachers for a home run to break up a perfect game, to break up a shutout, to break up a no-hitter. The next batter was Ricky Henderson, and he struck out, so Holman got a one-hit win, but this also ended up being the final home run of Ken Phelps' career, and a bit of a knife in the heart to Mariners fans.
0: So he ends up being sold to Cleveland, and that didn't really work out. He was released. He tried to come back in 1991 with the Giants, but that didn't really work out either. So to c- close the book on his major league career, he has a 239 average, but an 854 on base plus slugging percentage with 123 home runs, 116 of them against right handers.
1: Just a very unique power hitter. There's only been 35 times in Major League history that a player has hit more than 24 home runs in a season with fewer than 344 at-bats. That was the most at-bats that Ken ever got in his career. Ken did it four times. Some of the notable names on this list are Mark McGuire, Ted Williams, Barry Bonds. I'd hope that people would remember him for for that kind of power hitting and and for that kind of role-playing as opposed to just as a punchline to a joke.
0: How about in retirement?
1: He spent maybe a season as an announcer for the Arizona Diamondbacks, but he's worked for the Arizona Public Utility for a long time doing community outreach. I don't know exactly what his job entails. He's been doing some clinics with young baseball players and those kind of things that are sponsored by the public utility as a goodwill effort. He shows up at baseball camps and other public events, and he still goes to Mariners spring training and bumps into Jay Buhner every once in a while. So now that we've taken a deeper
0: look, David, what do you think of Ken Phelps? Do you think he gets a fair rap?
1: Aside from that perfect game, I think that Mariners fans remember Ken Phelps fondly from his time in the 80s. He crushed right-handed hitting. He got on base a lot. And he was a really good player in those short samples for some really bad Mariners teams. He's a record holder for fastest to 100 home runs. But to Yankees fans like Frank Costanza or, or Larry David, who is writing those episodes and probably suffering and well-remembering Ken Phelps after his retirement, they only remember the what could have been of a Jay Buhner in the outfield. And they forget that when they brought in Ken Phelps, he was brought in for a reason. He was brought in because he was a good player. Phelps has a pretty good attitude about this whole incident. He joked around with Jay Buner that he had a better record than Jay did before the trade. It's not like this was a, a sure thing that Jay Buner was going to be a star. He said, Buner had a heck of a career, but I know one thing. I was better than him before we were traded for each other. And Jay Buner passed him up. Ken knows that he was a good player, just in the wrong situation. And that seemed to be the M.O. of Ken's career, particularly his early career with guys blocking him. And that Bill James, Ken Phelps, all-star team is a sign of guys who are great players beyond prospect age who dominate in the minors and could succeed if they're just given a chance. And I think there's something impressive about having a mindset to play as long as Ken did in the minors, knowing that you're blocked and knowing that no matter what you do, there's not a spot for you in Montreal or, or Kansas City. And he dealt with that failure, and that must have been difficult throughout a long minor league career. And then he ended up getting his chances. And I think that there's a lot of these guys looking back at these these yearly Ken Phelps all-star teams that different uh, publications put together who don't ever make it. And Ken did have that chance. So I think it is a good story of a guy getting so close and then actually finally making it as a 29-year-old journeyman and playing as well as he did. He said he did as good as he could. He got to play in his hometown for five years, and he's thankful for that. He got a World Series ring, so he has no regrets about his career. Not living up to his usual standards in New York must have been disappointing on the biggest stage in the world, but he has a healthy mindset about the Seinfeld thing and says, it's nice to be remembered for something.
0: (laughs) He is definitely remembered thanks to that show. And that mustache. And that mustache. But a couple things that stand out to me, David, the years of dominating in the minors, it does feel good to win, even when you're at a lower level and to hit home runs. Boy, that is a fun experience. And the kind of healthy attitude that Ken had about the years that he was able to play, uh, I think is really admirable. It also helps to point out just how far baseball management has come. When you mentioned that he was an early Moneyball guy before Moneyball, you can definitely see that nowadays a team would take these unique talents and try to find a place to apply them or else move him somewhere else. And it just shows like why a lot of those Yankees teams didn't amount to much, even with spending all the money they did, they weren't using the talent on their team in the right way.
1: I'm reminded of it this week because of the recent success of Yermin Mercedes on the White Sox. This is a guy who is 28 years old, had one plate appearance in the major leagues in 2020, and in the first couple games goes eight for eight in his first at-bats. And he had an eight-year minor league career. Everybody knew he could hit but you just have to give the guy a chance to to get some regular playing time and and maybe they can light it up. So I don't know that Ehrman Mercedes is going to end up being the next
0: Ken Phelps. Well, it, it depends on what you mean by the next Ken Phelps. We like to see the next Ken Phelps meaning the next great power hitter, and that's how we'll choose to remember him. So thank you to Jeff for uh, the suggestion. And RIP to Jerry Stiller, who's iconic remembrance of Ken Phelps will always stay with us. Thank you, David, for bringing the story. Thank you to all of you listening at home. If you have other suggestions, we would love to hear them. Again, you can find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash 1988 tops Podcast. And if you've ever been betrayed by a caddy's bad advice, we would definitely love to hear from you on Twitter. You can find us at tops 1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.